logistics, okay? Freaking logistics, man. Ready to talk logistics? But how? It can't be done. We should probably figure out some logistics. This is a massive bender that the economy has been on for two years. Now we're having to deal with the hangover. And the problem is because it went on for so long, funded by government stimulus and so much money poured into the economy that consumers spent that you have this bullwhip effect that's happening. That's Craig Fuller, founder and CEO of FreightWaves. FreightWaves is arguably the most trusted provider of supply chain market intelligence. Their high-frequency price, demand, and capacity data and analysis allows customers to benchmark, analyze, monitor, and forecast the global physical economy. On today's episode, Craig discusses why so many suppliers are overcorrecting, how the bullwhip effect is hurting so many companies, and why he thinks the smartest people are investing in transportation, not NFTs. Craig is a true thought leader in supply chain, and today we dive deep into the current and future climate of the supply chain industry. But first, a brief word from our sponsor. This podcast is powered by the team at Stored. Turn your supply chain into a competitive advantage. Go to Stored.com to learn more. I'm your host, Alex Kent, Director of Sales at Stored, and this is Supply Chain Therapy. All right. Well, welcome to this episode of Supply Chain Therapy, joined today by Mr. Freightwaves himself, Craig Fuller. Craig, how are you? I'm doing great. It's a really awesome time to be in logistics and supply chain, so so much is happening. It definitely is, and, and that's why we're having you on to, to talk about it. So really excited about this. Um, let's just dive right in. You know, first off, Freight Waves, you guys have a pulse on the entire supply chain industry, newsletters, podcasts, the Sonar platform. Tell us a, a little bit about what you are doing at Freight Waves, the idea behind it, and kind of how you got started for those that may not be familiar just yet. Yeah, so it's our focus is really doing sort of two missions at the company. One is high-frequency data, which is looking at the freight market on a near real-time basis, so really within the past 24 hours, of anything that moved. And naturally, supply chains are upstream. So if you think about the economy, if we're talking about retail, or we're talking about manufacturing, we're talking raw materials, those products have to move, those source materials have to move months before they're actually consumed. And so because the movement happens so far in advance, you can actually get a, just by using supply chain data period, you can actually get an advanced preview of the economy. Well, we take it one step further, which is we focus on high cadence, high frequency data, which is really sort of understanding and tracking the economy on a near real-time basis. So what moved yesterday, uh, what capacity was offered or not offered within the past 24 hours, at what price is really important to us. So our basis is really the balance of supply and demand, the freight market. And we're over the top, means we don't get into workflow and we don't do a bottoms-up approach to, to data. We really look at it from a market-level data. And the other side of our business is media I often joke that uh, Freight Waves is as if Bloomberg and ESPN had a baby in the back of a semi-truck. And what I mean by that is, if you think about how Bloomberg provides a lot of data and media coverage, they tend to talk at a very sort of cerebral level in the economy. You know, it's a very sort of macro economics talking about these really sort of big themes, and that's their coverage. And then ESPN is sort of interesting because they, they cover sports as fanatics. They're fanatical about the sports. They're fans of the teams. Even the, you know, the sports analysts are fans of the teams that they're covering. 
but they talk at the level of other sports fans. And so you sort of relate with that. And I think Freightways is in many ways like that, where we've assembled a lot of folks that used to be in the industry that are able to talk about the industry from an industry first perspective. And I think that's a frankly different than a lot of the other media businesses that have sort of grown up in the industry because they sort of talk about it as if they're covering it as an observer versus a participant. I think while we don't participate in the freight, you know, the vast majority of our team has actually dispatched trucks, driven trucks, worked in warehouses. They they have been on the ground. They know what that life is like. And I think the, the most interesting piece about that is, you know, having consumed FreightWaves media and content for, you know, all of my professional career, I, I think is that fanatical aspect of it. Because we joke a lot in supply chain is like, you don't really look to get into it or, you know, sometimes you're born into it, but you know, you you think of it and then you just get so sucked into it and you get so excited about, you know, new things that are happening, new developments. And, you know, a lot of the the world, I feel like, you know, in the past two and a half years, they're, they're starting to learn about it because they have to and it's affecting their day-to-day lives. But before that, they're like, yeah, stuff just gets there, right? It's like the Hotel California, you know, you can check in, <laughs> and check out. That's exactly what supply chain is. And freight specifically, it's an industry that, once you learn it, you sort of you you learn how the business works. You're sort of unemployable in other industries, <laughs> or you're so addicted to it. The 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 day to day sort of d- adrenaline elements of this sort of very volatile market stuff that goes wrong. We're we're sort of our own little subculture, and I think it's hard to get out of it. And that's why you'll see folks that will maybe leave one company, but they oftentimes stay in around the industry. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important for, because this is a complicated industry, it's not easy to understand for people who've been doing it even for sometimes years. And, and so it, there's a lot of questions that often come up and it's the people that have that quote unquote tribal knowledge that are able to articulate it and understand it. That's right. Back to Freight Race really quick. What was the vision when you first got started and how have you kind of adapted uh, from that, that initial vision? Yeah, so I mean, I'm I am a definition of a you know I grew up in trucking. I I grew up literally you know diesel. I say I have diesel in my blood, so I grew <laughs> up around the industry. I loved it. I had also I'm always fascinated with financial markets, i.e., Wall Street or commodity markets. Or I'm not a crypto trader, but I know a lot of people are, and particularly younger people, and they sort of they look at that as a market. And so markets just fascinate me how things are bought and sold and just the dynamics of it. But I also, having grown up in around trucking, I love the industry. I love everything about it. I, I love the stories and the gossip and the just history that exists and just how this industry works. And so really, through Freightways, I had the opportunity to sort of blend those two passions. One is the markets and the economy, which I'm a student of the economy, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm a student of the markets. And then I get to talk about as if freight. And so that was really the inspiration for freight waves, you know, went through this long journey to sort of get here. But the idea was, can we talk about freight the way it's a market? And I think that was very different. If you sort of look at the way freight and supply chains have historically been covered, most of the main major media covered it when something was going wrong. Even the last, you could say that in the last 12, you know, 24 months, they're covering it because we're out of meat, we're out of toilet paper, we're out of People, you know, they're not talking about because it, it works. And I think as an industry professional, and this was an evolution of a much younger generation has entered the industry, is I think we want information that's more real-time. And really before Freightways came along, 
there wasn't really a, a bias to real-time information that's coming out on a daily or bi-hourly basis. And so you would do these interviews. I remember when we first started the company, you know, we didn't intend to be a media company, sort of grew into that. But I would do these interviews about sort of the plans to bring data and intelligent and transparency to the market. And I would t- do these interviews with the freight media, sort of the established media, and it would show up like in an article four months later. And the company's name had changed, you know, founders changed their names of the companies or the business model changed. We had pivot like two name changes ago. And it just sort of shows you how as an industry, we didn't cover our own. And and I think our goal has been to provide as much real-time information as possible. And we do that through our our you know, our editorial product. We produce about 50 articles a day. We do that through streaming video content, about three hours of content a day. And frankly, it's been so shocking how many people consume our content. You know, 80,000 people a day uh, on any given day will tune into our content. That's a big number in my mind because, uh, you know, that's like running a, a mid-market, like I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee. That's frankly as much, if not more, than what people tune in to the local TV news networks. And so it's just been it's been a tremendous run, and we get to talk about an industry. And I think what's happened in supply chain is so exciting. You see companies like Stored, where you guys have come out and had this sort of flexible, on-demand warehouse space, sort of changing the paradigms of how people negotiate and manage their physical footprint and then combining that, that was sort of the first sort of idea, and then sort of combining it with the logistics networks behind it. I think it that is an innovation that's sort of recent. We're seeing now that your capitalists pour all this money into it. There's a much different generation that's entered the industry. And we're seeing a lot of innovation that's happening, a lot of new companies that have popped up. It's just a really exciting time to be here. Where would you say we are in kind of the the timeline or, or life cycle of of the logistics industry? You know, obviously it's one of the longest standing, longest existing industries out there, right? Stuff was moving from point A to point B long before we were here. But bringing the technology aspect into that, where would you say we are in the the life cycle of that? We're very early in that. I think you know I have to use the analogy where so I I was in fintech or financial technology for a decade and had a payments business and and really 2005, 2014 was sort of my generation. You think about how we pay for things, uh, how we buy things, you know, tapping your phone. That technology didn't exist 15 years ago. Even Venmoing somebody or transferring on a phone was just unheard of. Square didn't exist when I first got into payments. Like all of these technologies we sort of take for granted. We haven't even talked about like Robinhood and buying insurance was a process online. Like, all that technology that happened and how we pay for things has really changed. And crypto wasn't even a, didn't even exist back in those days. Uh, wasn't even a thought. But all of that has sort of evolved. And the version of, of financial or fintech that happened in 2005 was, you know, bill pay was still, most people were still writing checks and sending those checks in. And so there's been this evolution that happened in financial services. But the real pivotal moment for fintech was when Lehman Brothers and the great financial crisis, what it did was a couple of things. Is One is banks laid off. Well, everybody was laying off folks, but particularly the financial institutions were sort of the, the cause of a lot of this. So they went through a massive restructuring. And a lot of the talent that managed technology around user sort of experiences left the traditional financial institutions and joined a lot of these emerging startups. And I think also 
consumers and people who had used to think that Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, Countrywide Mortgages, Wachovia Bank, to sort of use an Atlanta reference, were going to be around for decades. These were institutions that we had grown up with. You know, there was a moment in the great financial crisis when Morgan Stanley was going to go, Warren Buffett bailed out Morgan Stanley. Like, it's a remarkable time in history. And you know, younger generations probably don't remember that, but this this is a generation I lived through. And I think what's really remarkable about that is that all of that innovation was taking place because of a crisis. The traditional banks went into lockdown dealing with compliance and trying to get their systems and having to do new regulations. And meanwhile, Silicon Valley was pouring billions of dollars into these most innovative companies. It has been the most successful category in venture capital than financial service fintech. So what does that mean for supply chain? If you think about the past two years and you think about the crisis that we've all, and, and I'm not talking about the industry, but I'm talking society, has gone through, whether it's a health crisis with COVID or just this, so the initial phases of running out of toilet paper and meat and all that stuff we needed, that was a supply chain crisis of sorts. Then we had the massive bull, like massive lack of inventories, things taking 10 times longer if you could get your hands on it, crisis. And now we're dealing with a bulb effect. And so society has had to go through this supply chain crisis along with the industry. And I think this is the Lehman Brothers for supply chain technology. So we've seen in the last couple of months, there's been a lot of layoffs and sort of concern about the end of the venture cycle. And it's not a time when you want to be raising money. You're, you know, you're very fortunate stored raised, happened to raise in the, the last, you know, a couple of quarters. Other companies were able to do that. And if you did that, you're probably fine because you've got a pretty plentiful balance sheet. But if you've timed your capital raise for, for now, it's going to be difficult. I think what's going to happen is from that, uh, a, lot of a lot of VC is going to pull back on things that are more speculative. And I think they're, all, they're going to really prioritize investments that solve real problems. Like inner, free stock trades like that sells my data to sort of front end my transaction doesn't really solve a problem. But figuring out how to get energy from the port of Houston to Boston in an efficient way or figuring out how to optimize fuel economy or figuring out how to optimize a warehouse and all this warehouse space, figuring out how to get products from point A to point B, how to restructure and reconfigure the entire economy, that's real problems. And if we can take all of that talent and money and capital that was going into these unimportant things like NFTs, and I hate to be down on the crypto folks, but like, it's true. Like, do we really need to spend $30 million for a tweet? Like, it doesn't make sense. But now we're in a different time, and I think it's a great opportunity. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It's, you know, focus on solving the real problems. Focus on, you know, how are we addressing the the labor force, right? What are we doing with, you know, autonomous robots and and those types of things inside of a warehouse to reduce, you know, the cost of labor and, and the amount of people you need to, to run a warehouse. So we go on and on about that. Um, but I, I do want to move on to our, our first segment here, all about challenges. Houston, we have a problem. problem. You obviously talk a lot on Twitter, you know, freight industry expert, I will say, and um, overall supply chain expert. How about that? Where are we headed? You know, where are we going? 
disclaimer for for our listeners, we are recording this at the end of June uh, 2022. So we want to talk about real time and, and what we're going towards. What it we're is June of. 30th, though. So like we're sort of June into July. We're in July. Like, so nothing, hopefully nothing interesting happens between now and the July 4th. So right. So we're in July. But where, where are we going? Like, what are we expecting? Right. I mean, I think you guys talk a lot about how the freight market and, and supply chain data really influences the economy. We get an early look based off of what the freight market's doing. I think if you go back and sort of look at the fact that supply chain information, supply chain data is so upstream. And what I mean by that is you think of the ultimate consumption point is when a product is consumed. In, a, in an America's economy, most times it's consumers that are consuming product, particularly products that go into warehouses or being consumed, this, this finished products are consumed by consumers. And the consumer is ultimately the one pulling on the supply chain. So let's think about the term supply chain. It just means the way I always think of it is like you, you, you see these, you know, these old Roman sort of, you know, the, the, the guys all pulling on this chain and it's spinning these wheels of like whateverness. That's what a supply chain in my mind is. It's just an interconnected set of wheels. And you have and, and our sort of definition of that is the consumers pulling on that set of wheels and they're pulling that chain. And they're trying to drag this thing along. And what happens is the consumers, when they actually consume the product, that product leaves the economy. And unless it ends up on eBay, it's probably never going to return to the economy. You know, Because of it, consumers, at least in America, are the ones driving the success of the physical goods economy. And we saw that during the early days of COVID is that consumers panicked and went and bought, got their hands on everything because we knew this was going to be pretty. We'd seen what had happened in China and what was happening in Europe. And so I think consumers were just like, I don't know. Nobody knew what was happening. So the world's going to come to an end. Bottled water's going out. And we're like, look, like, <laughs> the water pipes still work as far as I'm concerned. But it, I think it's just a natural thing. Is like, if the world ends, if this is it, let's make sure we're prepared for the end of it. And I think uh, consumers have been really driving the economy. They have many for decade, for many decades but certainly in the last two years. And what's happened is all that consumption has really, the bullwhip effect is, is that idea that um, when you have sort of exaggerated demand at the for most parts of the economy at the retail level, when they, the retailers saw this massive surge in product, they then are ordering product. And because our economy is really sort of orientated, a lot of consumer spending towards big box retailers, those big box retailers are going to order so much more than they needed because they didn't want to be out. The idea of being out of stock was pretty dangerous. And so they ended up ordering so many so many goods. Well, that flowed upstream. So we saw retailers order a lot of goods. We saw those suppliers to those retailers, whether they're wholesalers or manufacturers, ended up producing more. Well, guess what happens upstream to them is also those uh, suppliers think, I have all this demand. So they overcorrect. And eventually, everybody up, up the supply chain is overcorrecting. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now. And this is sort of classic supply chain 101 academic stuff is like if you went and took a 101 class at a, at a university about supply chain, you would learn in the class about the bullwhip effect, which is when there's exaggerated demand for some reason, let's just say that in Atlanta, we had a massive, in middle of July, there was some freak 
140 degree weather and all of the ice and ice cream and water and everything sells out across the Atlanta Metroplex. Then, or maybe a better analogy is like when you guys call for snow in Atlanta and <laughs> all of a sudden the weather's like, hey, it's going to snow and then all the bread sells out. And the milk you, and the eggs and everything. Yeah, like, like milk and eggs and Pop-Tarts and everything is like sold out. Well, if you're a supply chain manager and you don't have the context of like all of these one-time inputs, and this goes on for say weeks or months because of this freak snowstorm that everyone's anticipating going to happen, you're going to keep producing those products at the new level. The problem is the economy just sort of overcorrects for that. And what we saw was because things were taking longer coming from overseas is that retailers were then just ordering more. You know, maybe I'm selling Christmas, fake fake Christmas trees or fake Christmas lights. Well, if these don't arrive by October, they're not going to be in my supply chain by December or by November, so I need to order more. So I'm gonna call up my vendors in Vietnam, I'm gonna call up my vendors in Mexico, and I'm gonna order 10 times as many Christmas lights just so I have them because these markets were ridiculous. So they did this, and they did it in mass, and it wasn't just one company, but it was everybody. So imagine that, that freak snowstorm across the country that all the bread and all the milk and all the eggs are sold out, but in this case, it's retail goods that are being sold out. And everybody overcorrected. So now we're paying for that. This is a massive bender that the economy has been on for two years. And that bender is now we're having to deal with the hangover. And the problem is because it went on for so long, funded by government stimulus and so much money poured into the economy that consumers spent that you have this bullwhip effect that's happening. So that's the first part of it. So now... We have all these products that were, we just ordered too many of them. Now we have consumers that have pulled back on spending of physical goods and out spending money on services. So like, look, I've saved my money. I want to go travel. I, I've saved my money. I, I, I don't need another basketball goal or I don't need to put, I put a pull in two years ago. So all my pull toys are there. I redid my, remodeled my kitchen during COVID I don't need that anymore. And so now we're out partying, we're out traveling, we're doing the stuff that we didn't feel like we could do for two years, and the money's being allocated there. So that's one thing. And then you have these inflationary impacts. So food is shooting up, energy is shooting up, gasoline shooting up. That's a problem. And then you start hearing about the economy, inflation. So all of these things are happening all at once. We've got inflation. We have the bullwhip effect. We have consumer uh, a share of spending what they spend money on physical versus services, it's all happening at once. And that's what's causing the physical goods economy to slow down pretty, pretty quickly. Are there any types of companies that are going to be more greatly impacted by a potential recession? Some may say, you know, as we sit here on June 30th, July 1st, you know, we are in the recession already. But, um, you know, what types of companies are going to be more impacted versus others? Yeah, so I think those high dollar, big ticket discretionary items. And the, the good news from an economist standpoint, or maybe not an economist standpoint, because economists tend to be like, they'll call a recession a year later. Oh, that was a recession. Well, thanks for telling us yeah. a year later. Like, it's it's always sort of a joke that an economist will tell you when you're a recession the year afterwards. But, you know, it's those items, if you think about the stuff that we saw in the stock market that sort of sold off very early in that sort of correction, 
we'll call it a correction, we'll call it a bear market, whatever you're going to call it. The Peloton is sort of the poster child of like bull whip effect meets consumer pullback. A Peloton bike is a $2,000 bike that you then have to pay, I don't know, 20, 30, $50 a month for. I don't know what the subscription is, but, but it, you know, it isn't by all definitions a high end discretionary purchase that was never you know, this is going back to supply chain 101 stuff is like bullwhip. The demand that Peloton is sort of the poster child of the bullwhip effect, because what it did was for, for whatever reason, they anticipated that the short term shocks, the demand that they saw in 2020 were going to continue on indefinitely. And they had reached a new plane. It's sort of like all of a sudden the same level of demand was going to continue to carry them forward. What they didn't understand it is very clear now is that they did not anticipate a consumer pullback or a consumer bullwhip effect. And now they have all this excess inventory they got to figure out. And so any of these high ticket items that are what we call consumer discretionary, it means that you don't have to buy it, but you could buy it if you had the money, are the ones that are most impacted in an economy like the one we're seeing or the one that we're in in sort of mid-2022 is it's, it's those items. So Samsung came out uh, in mid-June and said that they were oversupplied and basically told their vendors, there was a report in a, a Japanese newspaper, that they told their vendors to basically ha- to cut off half the shipments. Because things like, think of what Samsung sells. They sell TVs, they sell uh, monitors, they sell washing machines. These are items that you're unlikely, if you did bought any of those in 2020, you're unlikely to go buy another one of those items. And, and so because of all that, this cons- big ticket consumer discretionary items are the ones that are going to get whacked. So talking about the recession and potential recession listeners, you, you take your, your guess on that and, and whatever you want to think there. But how does it correct itself? How do we correct the, the inventory allocation problems that we're having? Too much inventory, right? We have a lot of goods here. They're not selling. How do we correct that? How do you look at that? And, and what does it kind of look like post-recession? What does our, well, our supply think, chain industry look like? I think the good news, so it's good at sort of the silver lining in all this, is that a lot of the prices for these items will have to come down. So just go back to classic 101, economics 101. So think of like all of a sudden if, and what's interesting is Amazon is sort of, they're going to have two prime days this year. They're not doing that because they're they're being nice people. Like, love Amazon, but like, let's just be honest. They're doing two Prime Days because they know that there's a massive inventory overhang and they need to get rid of a lot of stuff. So if you're running a supply chain at Amazon or you're running a supply chain or product categories at Walmart or you know, Best Buy, the natural thing to do is to cut the prices to drive demand. Because what that does is two things. Is One is it makes it attractive for someone to say, hey, you know, my TV I bought two years ago at the beginning of COVID, I I wanted another one of those TVs. Maybe I will replace the one in my bedroom that's seven years old with some of the new features. So, but I don't I don't want to go spend high dollars. But if it's half off, maybe I'll do it. So what they can do with that is through pricing, is they can drive a lot of that inventory consumption. Through consumers. And the good news is the retailers are exceptionally good at doing this. They've been doing it since 
that's what that's why they're successful as big box retailers. They understand consumer psychology, um, and the the only thing you could sort of discredit or or sort of judge it, but they all did it, so we can't do that. Is that a lot of folks misjudged or misallocated or over inventoried themselves or over ordered, and are now paying the price of that. The good news is they will correct that pretty quickly. So that will be the first thing we'll see is we'll see a lot of sales of big ticket items will come down. We will be able to get our hands on them faster. The other argument is that they may not do that because of the big ticket, and they may hold them until longer. So let's say they wait until after the holiday season, and they hold them in inventory, but that means they're not ordering more. And so we have to go through this cycle. Think of it just like a bender. Think of it like we've gone out. We've had a lot to drink. It was rocking good time, the best party of your life. And it went on for, you went to Cancun for a week. Like it was the best party. The hangover is the worst part. And right now we're in the middle of the hangover. The headaches are starting. We're starting to feel a little queasy. We just woke up and we're a little drunk from the night before, but we're coming down. And the problem is the bartender, which is the Federal Reserve, which has been serving us drinks and over-serving us as consumers, has just cut us off. And because they've cut us off, that means we're going to have to feel the pain and it's going to be a little bit difficult. And it may be a lot difficult for some people, but certainly going to be a, a little difficult for the economy. And I think this is probably going to be, a, at least from where I sit, from a supply chain standpoint, at least a two to four quarter sort of issue we have to get through all this inventory. We have to stop ordering products or as many products from China or from around the world. We have to stop producing as much. And that will sort of self-correct. I, I think about it often, you know, it, last year this time, we're, we're looking at it and we're saying we don't have enough of anything, right? And, and we're seeing... You know, I, I feel like the container short or the container, you know, backlog in the in the port was um, still around, and and we were struggling, right? I think even you had a, a tweet this time around last year. It's like order your Christmas gifts now, right? So what does that look like? You know, Q4 of this year, right? I think you mentioned a, a ton of sales. We can start expecting that. And so maybe don't order your Christmas presents now. But you know, what is what does that kind of look like? Because it is completely different from last year or the year before. Yeah, I think you're you're just it's going to be slow. I think for freight providers in the freight market, it's going to be slow. And I think I, I still think there's a level of de, of of deny. I don't denial is not the right term. Caution, call it. Where like you think about just in, just take the trucking market. And I think you know trucking is, is the way. Certainly, it's where I'm spend my whole life in, and it's the market I understand the most. Um, but I think it's a really important barometer because it's so big. And it drives the vast majority of the domestic economy, but it also is a leading indicator of even, of we've, as we've seen, of ocean activity. Now, I'll explain that in a second. So if you look at the trucking market, the spread between contract and spot rates is as high as it's ever been. And what I mean by that is contract rates are typically done on an annual basis. They don't all happen at the same time. They roll throughout the year. And retailers, will, retailers and, and shippers will lock those rates in. The idea is that the trucking company will honor them by giving them capacity when they tender or send or book the load over. And what's happened is those rates have stayed really, really high, even as spot rates, which are 
a different type of rate, which is basically on a daily basis, what is the prices that it takes to actually book a truck that you're going to book immediately or within two to three days, and that truck's going to show up? What's the current spot price? And what we would normally expect is spot and contract to move in tandem. Spot would move ahead of contract, but not, but maybe by 90 days, 120 days, and then contract would sort of fall. It hasn't happened so far. A lot of reasons we think that's the case. The reason we think contract has stayed so high and spot has collapsed is because the trucking market, much like everything else in inventory, has its own bullwhip effect. The trucking market has been oversupplied by capacity because owner-operators, independent entrepreneurs, heard or saw or listened to all the narratives about the driver shortage, listened to all the narratives about a capacity shortage, and started hearing that their buddies who were driving trucks were making 200, 300, maybe even more, 200, 300,000 or maybe more, and said, hey, I can be a truck driver too. Like, I don't need to work construction. Or I don't need to work for Uber as a local driver. I can go buy a big rig and I can become a truck driver. I mean, there was a moment where you're hearing, you know, seeing on social media where people making over 300,000. And I'm thinking, I can still be CEO of Freightways and do this from the road. <laughs> like, there's a lot of money in driving a truck. And the problem is that because so many new entrants have entered the market, we have our own bullwhip effect that's playing out. They have too much capacity in the market, and that is depressed spot rates. But contract rates haven't fallen. And so you have to ask yourself, why aren't contract rates falling? Theoretically, what we think's happened is that all of those retailers we've been talking about, whether we're, talk, we're talking about Peloton, we're talking about Walmart or Amazon or all these companies, or all of those suppliers have had to deal with supply chain hell for two years. And talking to a lot of supply chain professionals, and I'm sure folks listening will, will know what I'm talking about, is if you went back to two and a half years ago and you asked the CEO or CFOs or CMOs of these large corporations, who ran supply chain in their organization? I'm going to guess half of the people didn't have a clue who is in the – maybe they knew the senior person, but they didn't know anybody in there. They never talked to them. They would get quarterly updates, and they get annual budgets, and that's it. And that was about the extent of the relationship. That's the level of attention that most companies pay to supply chain managers. And now they've had to deal with it. And so if you're the executive running supply chain, you have a new level of importance. You have a new level of pressure. And so you're like, I'm not going to screw this up. I am tired of getting yelled at because I can't control freight cost. I'm getting tired of yelling at, yelled at, even more importantly, because all of the products that we sourced are on a boat stuck in the Suez Canal or stuck off the port of LA, or I don't know where the heck the products are because nobody will tell me. And so if you've been dealing with that, the last thing you want to do is change your capacity map abruptly and you decide, I'm not, I'm going to use these large carriers as backstops contracts and I'm going to buy what I can on the spot market, but I'm certainly not going to upset the biggest trucking companies I do business with. We think that's what's happening. And I think what's happened is they're also worried about the, the longshoreman strike and, and, and the West Coast and what the situation. So they're going to wait to that. They're worried about this so-called tsunami of containers that's going to come from all over the world or come from China when China opens up and what that's going to do. And they're worried a little bit about beverage season and peak. And because of all these concerns, they're reluctant to sort of change prices. 
that eventually that reluctance will go away. They will catch up and they will go back to being the big, bad abusers in the minds of trucking company for taking advantage of them and putting all this. That's what they're going to think. And that's what's going to happen. Double clicking on on one thing you said about the the influx of capacity we have with with carriers in, in the freight market as far as drivers, right? You know, a, a lot of times we hear about people my age, right? In our in our late twenties, early twenties, you know, you look at a, a teenager now, they're not growing up and being like, I'm going to be a truck driver, right? So we look at this from a a longer term perspective and saying we are going to have a driver shortage at some point because it's not attractive to be a truck driver. You know, obviously, the last two and a half years, it's been fairly attractive. There's multiple media sources out there that, that say, as you mentioned, you know, you've got drivers making 300K. What does that do? It's a bullwhip effect again, right? Because we're going to have another shortage of capacity eventually, right? Well, there's a price for everything, right? So I, I think ultimately, if you sort of look at the economics of it, is the industry responded, or not talking about the companies necessarily, but as an industry, the economics took care of itself. And and effectively, there we, we've been able to prove by the number of new entrants in the market, and the data is public, it's government data, FMCSA registrants uh, of new fleets. You've been able to prove there's a price. There is a point in time where you can attract a lot of new entrants in the market. Now, what we've seen over the past two years is relatively unhealthy because it's happened so many so fast that the market just can't handle all that excess capacity because what they were doing was really responding to this demand we had in 2020 and 2021 and thinking that demand is going to stay persistent. That demand is going to stay with us forever. And so it is certainly an issue. You are correct to say that, that younger people don't want to be truck drivers. It is a problem or a challenge the industry is having to contend with is this demographic. Older drivers are retiring, new ones are not entering the industry. Younger people are not entering the industry. And because of that, the industry is constantly having to pay higher wages to sort of get those people. But the reality is that the market will correct the problem. It will be difficult. Right. If you operate a trucking business in a forced dispatch environment, as many trucking companies do, and the reason they work for you is because of the financial security consistency you can offer them. And all of a sudden, the market explodes in new activity, and it becomes the, the person could go make three, four, five times what they make for you. You're going to have to contend with that. You're going to have a driver shortage. But I think it's disingenuous to say that there is a market-wide driver shortage that stays indefinitely. So the way I think of it is, there are times in the market we have capacity shortages, and there are times we have capacity gluts. The market hires capacity, and it does not care whether that is a truck with a that's red, an orange, blue, white. Does not care. It simply wants capacity. It also does not care if that trailer is sitting on a rail car, on a train, or on a truck. It wants capacity. So. Because of that, that is the capacity situation which we have in flow. Right now, we are in arguably a capacity glut environment where there's too many trucks uh, on the road available for dispatch and not enough freight to haul them. That is not a driver shortage or a driver glut. It is a capacity glut. If you look at the driver shortage issue, 
individual trucking companies are going to have driver shortages. Those come and go based on the market dynamics. But the reality is, if you are an op, if you're a trucking company and people don't want to work for you, you're going to have a driver shortage. Fascinating, fascinating. All right, we do have to move on. So, moving on to the next segment, favorite segment, the venting couch. So talk, vent. Come on, vent. Go ahead, vent. I just needed to vent. Where'd you vent? Vent your frustrations. We all have had traumatic experiences when it comes to logistics, but it doesn't have to be that way. If you're ready to heal your relationship with your supply chain, check out store.com to learn more. Craig, it's my favorite segment because we get to learn from experts like you and, and talk about the bad, right? It's, it's never okay. It's never going swell. It's never awesome. Uh, but it is the life we live here in supply chain. So any stories you want to vent about? Oh, man. I, you know, I used to handle on-demand freight. So this was last-minute expedite freight. And I think all of my great stories or sort of greatest experience in terms of stuff going wrong that I personally experienced was through the on-demand business. So, um, you know, it was like, I, I think the, the, the reality is that when you're, you're dealing with on-demand last-minute high-paying freight, you're constantly belling somebody out because the only reason somebody's going to pay five, six, eight, ten, $30 a mile is because there is no other capacity. And so we had this rule at Express Direct, which we, we would say we would provide as many trucks within 60 major U.S. markets within six hours. And um, we would guarantee as many trucks as you wanted. And basically I had a rule you could never say no. It was like a religion thing. <laughs> and we had to take everything. And we said the only way you could ever say no is through price. And so just if sort of like this is Uber surge pricing before Uber even existed. So we were doing surge pricing um, when it was not cool. And um and what, what's pretty remarkable about that is at times we would become, we, our phones would ring and everybody would be calling us for capacity because people got to recognize that if you couldn't get a truck, you would get a call. We would have companies that would yell at me for charging them too much. I'd be like, stop calling me. It's like, <laughs> you shouldn't be calling me. But anyway, so it was Christmas Day. We had we ran a 24-7, 365 operation. And frankly, our most of our money was made on holidays or right before holidays, right after holidays, because that's where the cut and rips, the rip of the day is like a term that we took from Bouldering. And it was Christmas Day, and there was this young kid in there. He'd probably been working for us for three weeks. And we were a high-growth business, and we're like literally just throw him in a seat and figure it out, never say no. And yep. kind of company calls in, charge him whatever. And he got a phone call, and it was an, an electronics manufacturer that needed to move two truckloads from El Paso, Texas, to Dallas. It was a big electronics manufacturer of plasma screen TVs, if that dates me a bit, if you remember those things. Oh, yeah. $20,000. These TVs like twenty grand for like what, what is equivalent to my monitor today. Like it was ridiculous. And <laughs> full tr imagine how big a full truckload of $20,000 TVs is or uh, how much money's in that. And so – uh, manufacturer calls in, they call into the dispatch, and the guy says, I, I can't get you a truck. Now, he'd only been working there for three weeks, so he didn't know he wasn't supposed to say no, but he said no. And the guy says, I don't care. What will it take? He's like, I can't get a truck. He goes, so how about $5 a mile? Nope. How about $10 a mile? Nope. How about $20 a mile? Nope. So this goes on, and they're like, look, I don't care. I will send you a TV to your house. Like, give me right. your address. I desperately need to do it. So anyways, kids said no. Got up to $40 a mile, still said no. 
I'm out there two weeks later at this factory visiting with the head of supply chain with the sales guy. And he introduced me and goes, so-and-so is new here. I can't remember what his name was. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, right. what happened? I think I was like, what happened to the other guy? He worked because now he got fired. I was like, oh, he's like, why? He's like, he couldn't get these TVs delivered. I was like, this is like my chance. I'm like, hey, you should have called us. He's like, we did. And your guy said no. And I'm like, what do you mean? He said no. He's like, we even offered to send him a, a TVs to his house. And he still said no. And I guess... I guess what I learned in that, so I asked him why this load of truckload of TVs, these two truckloads were so important, is that basically the TV uh, produced manufacturer and, and brand and the retailer had an agreement that if they didn't deliver the, these massive fines, the fines had either the, there was a threshold they had to reach or something. I didn't understand the, all of it, but it, it was like a million dollar yeah. plus sort of penalty for not making this delivery. Somebody screwed up in their operation. We had to bail them out. We didn't. And what I learned about that or what I thought about that is that we could have easily or should have easily, you know, chartered a jet to fly two truck drivers. Because it was a large fleet. U.S. Yep. Express had a large number of trucks. There were hundreds of trucks that we could have gotten there if we had just asked the right questions. And I guess the, the moral of that story is, is in supply chain – in freights particularly, is there's always a price for everything. Yep. And there's always an opportunity. And while it may feel unethical or may feel ridiculous or egregious to charge somebody $40 a mile or $50 a mile, there is a point when it makes sense for them to do that. This dude lost his job because we said no. As I think about that, is this industry works when we have solutions that are able to sort of solve for that. And we had built that business Express Direct to solve these last minute on-demand issues. Our entire business model was to help this guy out. And we failed at that. We could have made a lot of money, but we <laughs> failed at that. So I, I just I, I think the industry is remarkably exciting. There's always a solution for everything. And uh, that's why I love it so much. Yeah, that is that's one of a kind. And you know, I hope we got some some more training for the the fellow that said no. Somebody's <laughs> gonna make some money. Set up an so I've always said the ultimate sort of retirement gig for me after Freightways is like I'm just gonna have I'm gonna sit on a beach, have a phone, and I'm gonna put a phone number is like if you basically we got capacity and you call us when nobody else has it and I'll charge you a hundred dollars a mile, but I'll get your I'll get it picked up. I will like I only need to do one or two loads of those a year. Like I'm in on that. I'll, I'll sit on the beach right next to you. How about that? Let's do it. Let's um, do it. All right. Next segment, talking about the future. What's one piece of advice that you would give leaders in the space as they look ahead? Well, I think, I think I'd be bullish. Like, yes, there's some short-term pain. But like I said when we opened the show is that supply chain is now getting cool. Like, you probably don't have to explain to your your family or your friends about supply chain. I mean, it's interesting because people are like, oh, you're in supply chain, and now they're all of a sudden interested in it, and they can have their own sort of story. I talked to a, a, an estimator who does building estimates for houses yesterday, just somebody I met, and he told me, he started asking all these supply chain questions that like two years ago never would have asked and never would have cared. And I think that is an opportunity for us as an industry to, I think, elevate our game. It means that as a professional, it means that you're probably gonna get more money because you're, you're, people now know that 
we're good at what we do and we solve problems if you are. And I think it just means the level of sort of prestige that's involved in this business goes from being you're a shipping clerk to you are making the economy run and you're helping these businesses. And I think that's what I would say. Just stay bullish, stay positive. Don't let the short term slow down and the market get you down because there's going to be ample opportunities. I completely agree. And, you know, I mean, sitting around the dinner table with, with friends and family, they're like, what's happening? You know, to, a year ago, they're like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Why aren't you fixing it? And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, it's, what's broken? Like, it all works. It's all broken. It's not just, it's not just one thing that it's a chain of events and a chain of, of wheels, like you said, that it is broken. And we, we will get back to some sort of normal. It's not going to look the same that it did, you know, three, four or five years ago, but We'll get back to a, a normal life almost, and you know, hopefully everyone does. Um, yeah, you know, it, it is one. It is funny because, like, when I started Freightways, people were like, "Oh, that's a niche." Like, oh yeah, that's a cute niche. It was actually a kid that we went to the high, same high school as we were talking yeah. earlier. Is like I was doing a presentation there, and one of the kids came up to me and said, "Oh, that like freight logistics, <laughs> like." That's a niche. And then, so he was being a little smart. I was like, "What do you? What are you? What, what business do you want to go into?" I can't remember what it was, but it was some small like tiny like industry and i'm like that's a niche this is 12 percent of gdp this is a big industry yep. so it's uh it is it is it is fun seeing the respect that we now get yeah shout out to the uh macaulay school in chattanooga tennessee gotta give them a shout out um all right where do you see opportunity in supply chain technology going forward i mean look i i think the good news is we're solving real problems. I mean, supply chain, ultimately, if you sort of look at the the speculative bets of the industry, there are some problems that don't exist. And I, I often think sometimes uh, in the early sort of cycles where venture capitalists were not informed, founders were not informed. And anytime you have this sort of bubble of an industry, you have a lot of sort of solutions that don't solve problems. There was some of that, and there, there still is some of that. There will always be some of that. You want some of that. But I do think now what we're seeing is the industry is able to attract enough capital and get really smart investors. And there's enough of us professionals out there that are now paying attention to venture. People that have been in the mm-hmm. industry are now working alongside founders that maybe are not from the industry. And what that's enabling us to do is go out and tackle problems. I think we're seeing, I'm seeing and hearing less of the I've got a solution to solve a problem more, hey, I'm solving this specific problem. And I think that is something that is is good. I, this is a natural evolution. Like I said, this is our Lehman Brothers moment, 2008. And I think we are going to rise from the ashes and, and really solve problems. I mean, the stuff we're going to solve now is energy and food. Like there are, unfortunately, because of the geopolitical issues, is there are there's going to be hunger issues, like serious stuff. And NFTs are not going to feed you. But getting product from point A to point B is. And I think modern society or society period wouldn't exist without trade and certainly wouldn't exist without transportation. This is the lifeblood of it. That's why you should be excited you're in this industry. It's so damn sexy. (laughs) Supply chain is sexy. We say that a lot over here for sure. All right, wrapping up with Craig Fuller. Let's get into some quick hitters. What do you say? Let's do it. All right. Favorite book to recommend? I like stuff by Peter Zion, uh, which is he's a geopolitical analyst and writer. So any of his stuff is is quite good. 
the the newest one is the end of the world is just the beginning. So mm, all right. We'll check it out. Total Last dollar. thing you bought online. I'm a pilot, so I bought a a a very boring ADSB for those <laughs> nerds out there who knows what that is. No idea. I have no idea. Doesn't matter. But it's uh, a I'll look thing. it up. You ask the question, I answer it. So. <laughs> well, we haven't talked about flying yet, and I know it's one of your passions. So where are you flying to next? I'm actually leaving this afternoon and headed to Norfolk, Virginia. Very nice. So, and then I'm going to go to New Jersey. So, taking my kids, we're we're doing a. My wife's up in New Jersey. She, her family's from there. So, they went ahead of me, and then my 11 year old and I are flying up to Norfolk. I'm going to go check out the the Maritime Museum and just hang out there and stuff. Very nice. Very nice. Sounds like fun. Favorite thing about Chattanooga. Disclaimer, I am originally from Chattanooga, so I threw this question in. Craig is from Chattanooga too, so I have to ask. We're going to pitch the uh, chat down here a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's such a beautiful outdoor city, and it's such a gem and just gorgeous in terms of all of the outdoor. Like, I'm not a – I wouldn't call myself like a – I don't rock climb, I don't mountain bike. A lot of people do. But for me, it's just the aesthetically beautiful elements of the area. It's just it's so gorgeous, and it's not it's not huge as a city, so it doesn't have the big city problems. Yeah, but it does have big city opportunities: mountains, rivers, valleys, all the above. Climbing, kayaking, whatever mountain biking, whatever you need to do. It's uh, it's certainly a special place. Um, last question here: If you could drive one carrier lane for the rest of your life, anywhere to anywhere, what would it be? If I were a truck driver, is that the question? Yes, yes. So I would say that I would be probably do Dallas, Chicago, Chicago to Atlanta if I needed to make money. So early in my career where I'm building up my nest egg, I'm going to go on these high-frequency lanes like Chicago, Dallas, Atlanta, do the triangle. Now, once I got rich hauling that or got enough to where I saved up a little money, I would have to go out west somewhere just because it's so damn gorgeous yeah. going from like Chicago to LA. And, but I, I, my route wouldn't be direct. I wouldn't be hauling for the money. I'd be going through like Utah, Salt Lake City. So I would do of the course. West Coast just because like it's so gorgeous that it would feel like I was on vacation every single day. Every single day. I love it. All right. I lied. Last question. How do people uh, reach out to you, get in touch with you, learn more? Obviously, check out FreightWaves.com. So the easiest way to get at me is on Twitter. So I I actually have a LinkedIn account, but I've locked it down because Twitter's LinkedIn's gotten ridiculous in terms of trying to reach out to people. So the best way to reach me and the most uh, pure way is is through Twitter. Email is sometimes difficult as well. just because I get so much of it. But like Twitter is my jam. So at Freight Alley is the best way to reach me. Check it out. All right. And there it is. That's a wrap. Thanks, uh, Craig. This was a lot of fun. And thanks for joining on, on Supply Chain Therapy. Alex, appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks for listening to this episode of Supply Chain Therapy, a podcast brought to you by Stored. Make your supply chain a competitive advantage. Go to stored.com to learn more.